Hey, everybody. I'm Trevor Noah. And I'm David Kabuka. And we are so excited to bring you this episode of the Trevor Noah podcast from Luminary. We've been grappling with everything that has been going on this year, from COVID-19 to the protests against police brutality, and we're excited to share our conversations with you. We have dozens of episodes up on Luminary right now, plus all new conversations coming September 2nd. So sign up and start listening with a seven-day free trial at luminary.link slash Noah. Not available in all markets. Terms apply. I feel like um, I appreciate human beings now more than I did before. Yeah, I mean, I, I get why that would be the case. Like if- I used to be, I, I feel like... Uh, two months ago, I was one of those people who was like, I don't know if I need human beings. Yeah. Like, I actually used to, hypothetically, I would always say, if there was no one in the world, I think I'd be fine. I still hypothetically say that, but um, it's a very hypothetical because I do <laughs> I do love people. But I just don't like invitations to things. From Luminary, this is the Trevor Noah Podcast. What's going on, everybody? I'm Trevor Noah, joined, as always, by my good friend, David Kibuka. Yo, what's going on, people? We've been away for a little bit, but we're coming back with six new episodes from the heart of the coronavirus crisis. We're in New York City, and uh, we're going to make a few episodes about everything corona. We're going to chat about life in quarantine, what's happening in the world of politics and not politics, what's going on with viruses and health and humanity and society and, and the economy and, and everything. So uh, good to see you still alive, Dave. Yeah, no, I'm always going to be alive until I'm not. I won't lie, I have been thinking about death a lot more now because of corona, COVID-19. COVID-19, yes. Yes. My mind has not been consumed this much by any, you know, like the mortality of humans as a thing. Yes. It's probably the same as happened like World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, you know, Rwanda, or like it's just that everyone is thinking the same thing for once now. Because, I mean, like when the Ebola virus came out, yeah. the people in Congo were experiencing the same thing that we are experiencing right. now. But we were like, yeah, whatever, let's continue. Is Seinfeld doing another season? That was the big thing. <laughs> are they? I mean, is it enough money? You know, this is a huge amount. He said, no, I can't believe it. Then they, then in the international news and people in Congo, uh, Ebola virus yes. is ravishing through communities and our minds were like, yeah, man, George Costanza was a great, a great character. And so now... Well, let me ask you this question. Yes. Did you feel like Ebola was getting like bigger news coverage when it was happening versus like Corona when it started? Because I felt like that. Like like Ebola had killed 50 people and I it was all over the news and it was like a big thing. And it, you know what I mean? Yes. Whereas like when I remember when Corona started, they were like, ah, 50, 100. It was like very, this is just, people were like, this is just a thing in China. You know, and then they were like, "Oh, some dude in Italy died," and they. But it, I, I sometimes wonder if it's like if we don't see the the you know like the way they put the dead bodies on the news when it's like like when the Africans were dying, there there were a lot of dead bodies. Well, I think that it's also got a lot to do with um, with the the categorization of it. I would say because when it comes to Corona slash COVID, uh, people say it's sort of like the flu. 
So you like, you know, like what, what, what John Bon Jovi? John Bon Jovi used to be, not to say that John Bon Jovi is a virus. No, I love, you know, living <laughs> on a prayer. I love all of that kind of stuff. But you're like, what is John Bon Jovi? He is, you know, a rocker. You know, that kind of, he was a rocker, but now they do some adult contemporary songs. Do you know what I mean? Right. Adult contemporary. Yes. So COVID, Corona, is also, sometimes people say it's a flu. So you go like, okay, it's this deadly disease, but it's also a flu. And some people get it. Some Imagine the range that it plays. It plays we will kill you to some people get it and don't know that they have it. So then what happens there is that you are like, depending on your type of personality, you'll go, I'll just take the flu version as if, you know, as if you can choose. So when they put it on the news, there is this, the coronavirus, it is like the flu or it can kill you, then we just go, ah, it's like the flu, and then we keep it moving. But now when it comes to Ebola, Ebola doesn't give... Ebola, Ebola has no range. A heavy metal, like, <laughs> you know those rock, those bands that eat bats? Yes. Well, excuse the pun. Um, uh, they, it's like, they just break the guitars. Right, right, the right. Dough. So, so when Ebola comes, Ebola doesn't have the adult contemporary session. It's not Brian Adams. It, it, is, it doesn't have any radio-friendly songs. It doesn't have radio-friendly songs. They're screaming. They, there's just like, did... did is that a cat on the stage? That they, are they decapitating a cat? I'm not a Peter person, but I'll be like, guys, this is wrong to to be doing this to animals. Oh, so then that's why Ebola had that instant impact thing. I, and then I they, still, yeah, I, I won't lie. I still think visuals help a lot. Yeah, I mean, in any response to anything, you know, like I think to myself when, honestly, when you look at Ebola, one thing that they did not mess around with was showing you the graves. I saw a lot of Ebola graves. I'm saying those things terrify you. So because like, it's terrifying. Yes, but it's but if you think about the actual scope, like if you think of how far it can spread, yes, you should be more terrified of Corona technically in a way because it can get to you easier. Ebola like can't go far. Because um, Ebola like Ebola like trashes its own apartment and then doesn't. Do you know what I mean? Yes, Ebola. I mean the yes the transmission of viruses, um, the morbidity rate of a of a. <laughs> The morbidity, you know, you know. That's my favorite thing about this virus is how we all become we've all experts. become experts. Yes, morbidity and the, the mor- and and uh, toxicology and uh, yeah, the antibody yes. rate and yes, immunize herd immunity. And I think once we get to a critical herd immunity, yes. then, then we will bit, yeah, yes. then then we'll all be there. Yes, uh, but I'm excited because I know you are. I don't want to s- state this incorrectly. You are going to state it incorrectly. I'm not, Dave. but I will correct you. Okay. Fortunately, I'm here to correct you. I'm not. I know that you are a fan, fan. of the Spanish flu. In, completely incorrect. N- fan is the, is the <laughs> wrong Okay, fan. let me put it this way. The first time I heard about the Spanish flu was from you. Yes. Because I remember, I thought you didn't know how to pronounce Spanish fly. And so I remember you were telling me a story like, man, Spanish flu is so crazy. It's like, you know, in 1918, there was a Spanish flu pandemic. And then I was like, God damn. I was like, wow, this guy knows some weird facts. And the way you talked about it, and I was like, wow, this is a really interesting thing that I didn't know Spanish fly had this history. And then, because I'm ignorant, you must understand. Yes. And then I, only afterwards I realized you were actually talking about a Spanish flu. Well, the thing is that when I was Googling Spanish flu, I was actually Googling Spanish fly. And then I stumbled into Spanish flu, read about Spanish flu and was like, wow, this is amazing. Then, so that, I told you that information. But yes, I am intrigued by events that remind the human being that the human being is actually an animal. Events that remind the human being that the human being is actually an animal. Yes. Most of those events I'm intrigued by. Just even childbirth. I'm intrigued by childbirth. 
Because it just reminds you that you're an animal. Yes. Have you seen a childbirth? A live childbirth? That's not your child. Oof. Like a physically, beautiful experience? Like physically sorry, in the room. Sorry, a beautiful experience. <laughs> I take that because people... A childbirth is a beautiful experience, but one thing that childbirth reminds you is because we're all... We have lofty ideas and, you know, a whole... All of that. But when there is a beautiful uh, person, a woman, screaming in a room because another person is coming out of her. And that sometimes, too, you are like, oh, okay, wow. What is happening is a person is screaming. And a human being is coming human out of is them. coming out of them. An- a human, another person. You're like, how many... <laughs> Where did you get this other person from? <laughs> you know when you describe it like that, uh, another human is coming out of you. Yeah. All right, but I think you, I think you're going to be excited because our guest today might be uh, an even bigger fan. I mean, I say fan, but really what I mean is, fan as you is said, intrigued. Y- yes. And and knowledgeable about the Spanish flu. Our guest today is a man by the name of John Barry, and he's the author of the Great Influenza, the story of the deadliest pandemic in history. And we're going to be talking to him about the Spanish flu and then obviously about like our current version of a thing and find out if it is a version of it. Do you know what I mean? Because everyone yeah. says like, this is our Spanish flu, is it our Spanish flu, etc. And so we'll get to see. So um, John Barry, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Pleasure being here. So let's, let's, let's start with the most, I guess the, the, the simplest and um, easiest question is, is coronavirus our Spanish flu? Hopefully no but there are a lot of similarities. I say no because uh, in 1918, that influenza virus killed at least 50 million people and probably closer to 100 million people. And if you adjust for population, that would be equivalent to 220 to 440 million people today. So, wow. you know, the worst case for this virus, you know, it, it will be in the millions worldwide, certainly, uh, but not those kinds of numbers, thank God. Can we ever get to that level again as people because of the technology we have? Like, what sure. was the Spanish flu as bad as it was because people didn't have the internet or was the virus a lot more deadly? Uh, both. You know, if, if coronavirus were that lethal, that virulent, uh, we'd certainly be talking about numbers in the, in the high tens of millions, I would think, by the time we uh, got a solution to it. Right. So we'd be better off, but you would still see a pretty horrific body count. Tell me tell me how the Spanish flu started. Like, I hear all of these conflicting stories. I mean, even the name Spanish flu, people fight about. You know, people are like, well, it's, it's not even Spanish. It's from Kansas. And some are like, oh, that hasn't been proven right. yet. Like, why is, it, why is it called the Spanish well, flu? Where did it come from? And what, like, what similarities are there between that flu and what we experience today? Well, all influenza viruses, all of them are naturally bird viruses. That's a natural reservoir for all influenza viruses. Um, I mean, nineteen eighteen jumped from you know animals to humans. Uh, there are several theories as to where it began. Uh, Kansas is one. Um, I advance that in my book, but actually, there's been a lot of research since my book originally came out, and I backed off that myself. I think China's more likely, but Vietnam's a possibility. Uh, there are a lot of virologists who think. France uh, is where it started. We'll probably never know. Uh, it's a respiratory virus. It's transmitted exactly the same way as uh, COVID-19. Coughs, sneezes, the virus can survive outside the body. Uh, so doorknobs, 
hand-to-mouth, things like that. Uh, got the name Spanish flu because Spain was not at war. And the European nations censored their press. In the United States, it was self-censorship, but it was in some ways even more extreme than, than the actual government censorship. So the warring nations didn't want to have, say, anything that might depress morale, might sound negative. Other than the Other war, than the war, right? Oh yes, of course. We don't want to. We don't want to distract you from the war. Exactly. Yeah. We know how you're enjoying the war right now, and the last thing we'd want is to give you some bad news. Right. Yeah. Exactly. So, <laughs> you know, the Spanish press did write about it, and the uh, King of Spain got sick. Uh, oh wow! So celebrity culture attracts yes. attention just then, as just as now, and it picked up. So he was the he was the Tom Hanks of the time. The big name that got the virus, and then people were like, wow, this is a real thing. Anyone can get it, yeah. Wow. I always think of people who were born in, sorry, this is a bit of a detour, but I always think of people who were born in like, let's say 1885, uh -huh. 1914, you would be old enough to go to war, you know, to fight. Right. Then you get to, the war ends, now there's Spanish, the Spanish flu. Then you, if you're in America, there's no alcohol. I mean, it was the Roaring Twenties, but there's no alcohol. Who roars without alcohol? And then the then the Great Depression in the 1930s, just a, like a terrible time. And so I sometimes feel like the Spanish flu is popular now because of COVID, but it's a, it's a hidden, devastating thing that happened to humanity. That's why I was so intrigued by it, if that makes any yeah. sense. Because the numbers that you're talking about right. are, are, are crazy. They are crazy. Yeah. And they, they're completely yeah, and one crazy. One of the other things that makes... 1918 worse actually is the uh, young people were dying. Uh, influenza normally kills the elderly and the very young. And uh, the very young kids, you know, particularly under age 10 or even more under age five, they died in huge numbers. Uh, but the peak age for death in 1918 was 28. And two thirds of the dead were probably between ages 18 and 45. Wow. See, that is like you've just come off a war and yeah. then now it decimates the rest of exactly. that population essentially. Exactly. Yeah. You know one thing one thing that really intrigued me John when I like when I read about the Spanish flu and and the time is I always assumed that the amount of myth that was pushed around during that time was a byproduct of being backward, as we would think, because we're in the future now. You know, I, I, the way people would say, oh, here's a cure, here's no cure, it's a fake disease, it's, it's not a disease, it's actually caused by these people, it's not, you think of all the misinformation. I always thought to myself that that was, ah, yeah, that's, that's how old times worked. People just invented things. But I, I've been shocked at how it's almost like an innate human thing. Because with coronavirus, it, it feels like that same thing has happened again, where people go like, I, all, I have my own theories, I think it's these people, I think it's this thing, I yeah. think it's this cure, I think it's... When, when, you, when you look at the, the Spanish flu, who had the... Like, is, is there somebody who had an early grasp on it and just didn't have the opportunity to speak or, or just wasn't listened to? Well, it was, it was different. The science back then, they didn't even know what a virus was. And yet... I mean, they knew there was a very, very small organism. They didn't know if it was a different kind of organism or just a really, really small mm -hmm. bacteria. But they were great scientists, uh, certainly as good as anybody around today. They knew how to make vaccines, but you can't make a vaccine against the 
pathogen, the causative agent, unless you know what the causative agent is. Wait, wait uh, what does that mean? If you can explain it in in layman's, David David struggles to understand some of these things. I totally got what you were saying. Well, vaccine yeah, no. stimulates your immune system to attack a particular invader, a pathogen. Right. But it's very specific, and if you aim at the wrong target, you're not going to hit it. So you have to know what the pathogen is. So in 1918, they were aiming at the wrong target. Uh, right now, we have the right target. We still have to find a way to hit it. And your your own immune system wor works exactly the same way. You get infected by something, your immune system attacks it, learns what the pathogen is, stores it in memory cells, and if it comes back, then you have a much better chance of defeating it a second time. You know, that's what happens with herd immunity. And again, the vaccine is an artificial way of creating that. The problem in 1918, at least in the United States, was that the public health authorities, because of the war, were outright lying. There was no Tony Fauci back then. You had the Surgeon General of the United States saying things like, this is ordinary influenza by another name. Uh, but people knew it wasn't ordinary influenza. The symptoms were horrific. Some people could die in less than 24 hours. Wow. Th that was unusual, but it certainly happened. Uh, people could turn so dark blue from lack of oxygen. Uh, in the book, I quoted a letter from one doctor to a colleague saying he, he couldn't distinguish African-American soldiers from white soldiers because their pallor was so similar. But maybe some of the most horrific symptoms were was uh, uh, bleeding. Uh, you could bleed from every mucosal membrane. That meant, you know, in, in some army camps, they recorded 15% of the uh, patients bled from their nose, but you could also bleed from your mouth and even from your eyes and ears, which is pretty terrifying, particularly to a layperson. Uh, normally, influenza doesn't cause any of, of those symptoms. So when you see people with symptoms like that, and the public health authorities are telling you, this is ordinary influenza by another name, you very quickly know that you're being lied to. Right. And you lose all trust in anything you're being told. What were the biggest conspiracy theories around Spanish flu? You know, if Americans were living in a world where they didn't believe the government because the government was flat out lying because of the war, what were the biggest conspiracy theories that were that were going around that were popular uh, around that, that time? Uh, it was germ warfare caused by the Germans, you know, seemed to make sense. Right. And that was advanced by actually at least some people in the government to keep the anti-German sentiment up and, you know, keep the war effort going. There was also the idea that Bayer Aspirin was spreading it. That's, you know, Bayer is a German company. You know, there were a lot of conspiracy theory type ideas, but that was probably the single largest one and, and got some official support. If you were back then, Dave, do you think you'd be a logical person or do you think you'd be deep in conspiracy theories and like superstition? I, I don't think I'd have survived. Uh, I think I'd be one of the first cases. What does but that mean? I would just be one of the first cases. You said like you're choosing to just bounce. No, I'm not choosing to bounce. I'm just going that I imagine like when these things happen, I don't imagine that I'm the survivor at the end with this and this. I feel, like, I feel like because of that attitude, you'd always be the survivor. I think you're that guy who would like begrudgingly survive the thing. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm not, not trying to survive the thing, but when, when the thing happens, just like with COVID, corona, yes. 
I mean, at some point they're gonna get me. Corona's gonna get me. <laughs> so it's like I'm. Uh, so it's like. Well, with Corona, you you have a you know more a likelihood of being correct unless we get a vaccine. Uh, or when we get, I'm pretty optimistic that we will. All the virologists that I know, and I know a fair number, they have reasons for optimism, which I can go into if you want. Yeah, I'd love. We'd love to. I mean, I mean, this is the time. This is the time for optimism. <laughs> okay. Well, the the bad thing about coronavirus is it's more contagious than influenza. If left unchecked, it's going to infect at least 60% of the population. There's a good chance it could go to 70 or 80%. But it's much less virulent than the 1918 virus. So spreads easier, but less deadly. Much less deadly. But to get back to the why people are optimistic for the vaccine, the influenza virus mutates very, very rapidly. One of the fastest mutating viruses in existence. Coronavirus it mutates much more slowly. And huh. the reason you can't get a vaccine against influenza is because it changes every year. So you have to get a new vaccine every year because you aim it, oh, it's like an aim it at a different... Yeah. 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 Right. <laughs> Although my wife has been on me to get a new iPhone, she has a six plus. <laughs> it works perfectly. <laughs> why? Why spend? You know, whatever. I promised the next, <laughs> the next iteration, she's getting one. Anyway, the uh, coronavirus mutates much less rapidly, and uh, the so-called spike protein, which is probably yes. the main target for the immune system. It sticks out from the... Uh, Are those those little red dots that we see around the black ball? Pretty much, yeah. Because it's weird that I know corona now. <laughs> like, I can like I can recognize corona, which yeah. is... I've never been able to do that with a disease. Yeah. If corona was walking down the street, I'd be like, hey. yo, that's corona! Yeah. I've never been able to do that with can a disease before. Can I take before. a selfie? Yeah. So, okay, so that little black ball we see, and then there's those little red spikes coming out, so that's... Th those are the spikes right. that that's, you're talking that's about. That's the part that attaches to human cells. And ah. that's what the immune system most, would probably recognize most easily. And that's pretty stable. So because it doesn't change a lot, then you have a very good chance of getting a vaccine against it. Huh. Okay. So that's that's really good news then. Yeah, that's great news. It is good news. Is that corona's corona's consistent and so we can catch up to it. Exactly. You know, by the same token that we don't know how long that immunity would last. You know, we, we know what happens with SARS and MERS, you know, which were coronaviruses, as I'm sure you know. You know, we're very confident that immunity to those viruses lasts at least a year. And, and there's a good chance a little bit longer than that. Whether it's forever is an entirely different question. We don't know. So the expectation is based on SARS and MERS, but we still don't actually right. know for sure is that if you get sick, you're sick enough to develop a strong enough immune response, then, right. then you would have immunity for at least a year and you know maybe longer. But it won't be, we don't expect it to be like measles, where if you get it once or if you get a vaccination, you're essentially immune for life or for a, for mm -hmm. a very, very long time anyway. Is there um, a... Uh vaccine for the 1918 influenza. Where is it now? Where's the 1918 influenza? Well, the 198 descendants of the virus of the 1918 continued to circulate until 1957. Oh, geez. You know, the virus mutated, became more mild, and was seasonal influenza until 1957. There was another pandemic in 1957, and 
when that new pandemic struck with a different influenza virus, it was nowhere near as lethal as 1918. Mm -hmm. When you get infected with that virus, your immune system clicks on to protect against every influenza virus it's ever seen. So the old virus couldn't get a hold, couldn't establish a foothold, and the new virus oh. could. And the old virus died out and was replaced by the 1957 virus. And 1968 came along and the same thing happened. The 1957 virus basically disappeared after the 1968 pandemic, which again was a very mild pandemic, even more mild than 1957. Now we had a pandemic 10 years ago, that virus actually, you know, that was extremely mild, but that virus co-circulates with the previous uh, dominant virus. So the virus from 1968 or its descendants continues to circulate jointly with the 2009 virus. Is there, um, because these things are from birds. Originally, Obviously but, not but from they can jump yeah. to mammals and you know, in 1918, people gave the virus to pigs. That's pretty clear. So do we, have we given things to birds? That's a good question. I don't know. Uh, no, because if birds are decimating yeah. us like this, guys, shouldn't we? Well, we got a lot of, we have bullets and shotguns and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. So now I feel, I don't feel so bad about, because, I mean, what did we, okay, I don't want to say what did we do to birds, because we've done, we've done a this, lot to you, birds. You, as... As the king of chicken himself. Yeah. Okay, pollution. Okay, I get it. But the birds could have sent a memo or something <laughs> like that instead of unleashing this yeah. ungodly virus. Is uh, one one question I have? I I know we've got to wrap up soon. Did we know? Do we know definitively how it jumped from the birds to the people? Like, no. is it was it through eating? Was it through just no, like it, hugging it chickens? It could have jumped directly from birds to people. Uh, mm -hmm. which was threatened in, you know, with so-called bird flu a decade ago, a couple of bir different bird right. viruses. We think it's more likely it passed through another mammal. Uh, but, you know, we're not certain about that, but it was likely. I mean, the influenza in 1918 infected everything, literally seals, tigers. Oh, geez. Wow. What, was, it, was it killing birds or were birds just living with it? You know, I... To the best of my knowledge, it didn't kill birds. That's I find that's always interesting. Is like the virus just lives with the original species, and then it decimates everything else it comes into contact yeah. with. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, it's not a. In um, many ways, I think it's like it's sort of like kids. Sometimes I find people's kids. The, I'm I struggle to understand how they live with them. Because like they'll come to my house or my my space, and I'm just like these things are killing me. Yeah, yeah. you know what I mean. They, you see them in supermarket terrorizing people. And then you go like, so you go home, with, you've lived with this thing for like seven years and you're still fine. And the person's like, yeah, I've just learned to live with it. And you're like, yeah, well, now it's causing a pandemic in the supermarket. You see what I'm talking about? No? <laughs> no. <laughs> so now, okay. So now we are, the influenza from 1918 has basically, it came in strong and has basically weakened as we, yeah, as it's going along. Disappeared. Yeah. Has disappeared. Yeah. So that could happen with COVID. Uh, like it could, like, I mean, it, without, uh, without, yeah, it's quite possible. If we didn't get a vaccine, can, is it possible yeah, that it yeah, just very you know, possible. fades but away? But this fade away, so we clear, this fade away includes a lot of people dying along That's the correct. way. Yeah. 
because I think a lot of the time when people say it's going to fade away, yeah. people think it's just going to fade away without anyone f going with it. Right. Right. Yes. It, it will take. So if we have nothing to stop it, it'll yes. take people with it. So, so John, when, when you, as someone who's friends with virologists, someone who is, is deeply entrenched in the world of, of viruses and flus, etc., what is your optimistic gaze right now for coronavirus? What, what, do you, what do you see and what do you hope would become a reality? Well, I would hope that in the United States they start, you know, doing what has been done in other countries uh, successfully. So far, it's been very chaotic response. You know, that's you've heard it from on the news constantly. You know, testing, right. contact tracing. We are unbelievably far behind uh, other countries in testing and contact tracing. Um, you know, I think we're opening up way too soon. We didn't really have a wave. What we did was mm -hmm. stop a wave from developing by closing things down. Right. And if we open up in the wrong way, which I'm afraid, you know, too many states may be on the verge of doing, then we're not going to get a wave. We're going to get a hurricane storm surge. You know, people have made tremendous sacrifices They've gone through tremendously painful economic times, a lot of people. Uh, but a, a big wave would wipe, would wipe out all the gains that we have managed to make so far in tamping this thing down. Uh, right. It could get out of control. So we need to get the tests out there. They need to be accurate. And we need to start the contact tracing. We still really are not doing that. If we do that, then as you open up your economy, you can, the disease is not going away. It's going to, will uptick, but you can keep mm -hmm. it under some kind of managed control. Control may be the wrong word, but at least it, it's manageable. Because you're, ma you're basically managing the outbreaks at yeah. that point. Yeah. You're trying to limit the, you, the outbreak happens to a small group of people and you try and limit it and exactly. then wait until it, it basically finishes. Yeah, you, Exactly. And hopefully those people and get back to health, and then but the virus doesn't spread on right. from them. And it is doable because other countries are doing it. Well, I hope that you're correct, John, and I I hope that uh, if you are writing a book about this virus, it it won't be as devastating, and um, we will have learned from some of our previous mistakes. But thank you so much for taking the time today, and um, good luck to you in New Orleans. I I wonder one thing: Do you regret being in New Orleans for a virus that keeps you indoors? Like, isn't isn't that like one of the hottest places you could ever be? Well, there is air conditioning, but it's not quite summer yet. <laughs> uh, but you know, we we go for walks every day, my wife and I. Yeah, we, we get okay. Outside. Okay, cool. Enjoy the walks. Thank you so much for taking the time and. Um, I hope that uh, we we get to chat again on the other side of this thing about uh, how we all we all did the right uh, that thing. That would be nice and uh, enjoyed it. Thank you. This was so informative. Thanks very much. Next time on the Trevor Noah podcast, I chat with my good friend David Kibuka about what life has been like in quarantine, or lockdown, or shutdown. Which one is it? We use all those words. The Trevor Noah Podcast is presented by Luminary and Prologue Projects. This episode was produced by Katya Kumkova and Ula Cooper, with editorial oversight by Leon Nafak and Andrew Parsons. Terence Bernardo is our audio engineer. The show was recorded with the help of David Paul Meyer. I'm Trevor Noah, joined as always by my great friend, David Kibuka. Thank you so much for joining us. 
If you're enjoying this conversation, join us over on Luminary for a full catalogue of episodes from the Trevor Noah podcast, plus even more coming September 2nd. Go to luminary.link slash Trevor Noah to subscribe and save up to 40% when you sign up for an annual plan. Not available in all markets and subject to local currency. Terms apply.